All right, well, now let me invite you to grab your Bibles and turn them open to Revelation chapter 19 to the passage our friend Brian read for us a moment ago. Uh, Today we're wrapping up our summer series. If you've been with us over the past couple of months, we've been in a series titled Drawing Near, and we've taken each week for about 10 to 12 weeks now to examine a different attribute or activity of God, and and all of this kind of comes to a culmination with this final dynamic of what we're studying together, and that's this dynamic of the celebration of God. And when you consider all that God is for us in Jesus, all that God is in and of himself, uh, that will lead to his celebration. That will lead to you and I honoring and adoring and praising God, which is ultimately what we are created and designed to do. And so here in Revelation chapter 19, you essentially have this going down where this passage portrays the wrapping up of the history of the world. And essentially, you find in this moment that the history of the world is going to be wrapped up in a moment of celebration, where God is worshiped, where God is honored, where God is adored and praised. One of my favorite features about these first 10 verses in chapter 19 of Revelation is is that there's one word that pops up for the first time in the New Testament here. It's actually the first and only time this word shows up in the New Testament, and that's the word alleluia. The word hallelujah being used four times in 10 verses, the first and last time in the New Testament. And the reason why that is, is because the New Testament has been driving and building towards this climactic moment, this culminating celebration of who God is and what God does to rid the world of sin and violence and evil and darkness and to replace that world with the new heavens and the new earth when All those who are redeemed by Jesus will gather around his throne and sing his praises, celebrating and adoring him forever and always. So it's a remarkable moment that we're being cued into here in Revelation chapter 19. Now, it's somewhat dangerous to do what we're doing this morning. It's somewhat risky for you and I just to kind of parachute into a book like Revelation because Revelation is a complex book. It can be a challenging book. It can at times be a controversial book because it hasn't been handled very responsibly and humbly and faithfully at times in the history of the church. And so we want to be careful just parachuting into a book like this this morning, but which is why when you look at these 10 verses, there's a lot in it. But what I want to zero our minds and our hearts into this morning, since we're not doing a a big study of Revelation right now, is I want to call your attention to three images. And there are three images in this passage that serve our celebration, that if we consider what they represent, they should drive us into the celebration of God now and the celebration of God forever and always. And those three images are these. One image is the image of a prostitute. And the prostitute in this passage basically represents all that's wrong with us and all that's wrong with the world. It is, uh, that's what the prostitute represents. But then there's also the lamb. And the lamb represents the solution to all that is wrong with us and to all that is wrong with the world. But then the third image you're going to find there is a bride. And this bride is who you and I become because of the gospel. This bride is who you and I are as a result of Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection. So we're going to talk about the prostitute and our problems, the lamb and the solution And then the bride or the results of coming to faith in this Jesus and celebrating this God. So the first image you find there is the image of a prostitute. Now, beginning back in Revelation chapter 18, just to give you a little bit of context, starting in Revelation chapter 18, you essentially have God judging Babylon. 
He's judging Babylon, and you get this imagery and this, this, these passages that work together to show this final judgment of Babylon where her smoke is rising forever. It is a complete and total judgment of Babylon. But when you get into Revelation chapter 19, the word Babylon isn't present in the passage that we just read. Instead, Babylon is referred to as the prostitute. Now, taking all of that into consideration, what we're talking about is human society that rebels against God, that rejects God, that doesn't want anything to do with God's will, God's ways, God's wonder, God's salvation. This is who Babylon or the prostitute is representing here in this passage. It's human society without God. It's human society in the midst of all of her violence and her oppression and her corruption. And, and what is interesting about the language used in this passage is that you find the language of sexual immorality being used to describe what the prostitute or what Babylon is like. Now, we don't need to hear that and get super narrow-minded in our thinking and thinking, okay, God's only judging literally sexual immorality because that's not entirely the case here. That's part of the case, but it's not the whole picture. When you read back at the beginning of chapter 18, you're going to find all types of sins and all types of corruption being described, violence, oppression, various things. And so when you get into Revelation chapter 19 and talk of the prostitute comes up and sexual immorality, what's at play here is human society that has turned her back upon the greatest lover in the universe. And when you consider the imagery of the prostitute and this whole dynamic is when you and I begin to really come to an understanding of the nature of sin. It helps us make sense of what sin is and why sin is such a serious and personal offense. To see the imagery of the prostitute and sexual immorality being used to describe kind of human society without God, we have to remember that one of the great themes of the Bible, from start to finish, one of the great themes of the Bible is that God wants to relate to his people not simply as a king relates to his subjects. And not simply as a shepherd wants to relate to his sheep. One of the great themes of the Bible is that the God of the universe wants to relate to his people as a husband relates to his bride. A marital union with his people. A covenant commitment with his people. It's one of the great themes of the Bible. And this marital, this union, this covenantal relationship that we have with the creator, that should help us see a little bit about the nature of sin. If that's God's desire, if that's God's will, if that's God's purpose and passion for his people and the relationship that he would have with us, then what does that say about sin? Well, it means that sin is anything that would interrupt that, anything that would contradict that. Sin is anything that would betray that lover, anything that would betray him as your spouse and as our spouse in the church. And so what that means, quite simply, is that sin is, is coming to an understanding that sin is adultery. Like when you think about sin, you don't want to think about sin simply as breaking a law or breaking a command. Sin is betraying the greatest lover in the universe. Sin is adultery. It is that type of an offense. That's what makes it such a big deal. To put it another way, sin is anytime we sin, we are choosing to love someone or something more than our God. We're elevating some aspect of the created order above the, cre above the creator. We are saying this person or that person, this thing or that thing is more meaningful to me than my God. That's the nature of sin. That's what sin is. It is a type of spiritual adultery. 
And what's tricky about this is that it, well, not really tricky, what really, what's really challenging about this is that when we think about sin, we must not just think about doing a bunch of bad things. If your understanding of sin is just doing a bunch of bad things, then, then you're going to have a very limited understanding of how the Bible talks about sin, and you're not going to know your heart very well. Because sin isn't simply doing a bunch of bad things. Sin is essentially relating to good things in ways that betrays our greatest lover. It's relating to good things in the universe in ways that say, okay, I'm going to look to you to be my greatest lover in this world than my God. That's what sin is. You might put it this way. There's a lot of good things in this world. There's a lot of good things in this world that you should be friends with. You should be friends with your career. You should go to work. You should work hard. You should contribute to society and human flourishing by being a responsible employee. You want to be friends with your career. There's a sense in which you want to be friends with your hobbies and you want to recognize that God has put a lot of things in this creation to be enjoyed by his grace and for his glory. And we want to be friends with all the good things that God has put into this world. But what we don't want to do is we don't want to go to bed with them. If we go to bed with them, then we're stepping into a relationship that we were not designed for, that we were not built for. We're stepping into a relationship that will ultimately turn sour at some point in time. For example, if you, you can be friends with your career, but don't go to bed with your career. If you go to bed with your career, you're going to produce some bad fruit. You go to bed with your career, you're going to become a workaholic. You're going to be tempted toward ethical compromise. You're going to find yourself valuing your accomplishments and your job more than perhaps your family at home and more than the God who created you and gifted you with the skilled and gifted you to be able to do the things that you do at work. So you want to be friends with your career, but you don't want to go to bed with your career. You go to bed with your career, that's when it becomes adulterous. That's when it becomes idolatrous. That's when sin begins to manifest in your heart and in your life. But it's not necessarily because you're doing a bunch of bad things. It's because you've committed yourself too much to a good thing. Jobs are good, careers are good, ambition can be good. And so when you see the imagery of the prostitute, we've got to understand something about our own hearts. Every time we sin, we are essentially pursuing an inferior lover. We are saying, this person, this thing, this job, this dynamic is going to be better to me and better for me than my God. And the Bible would say that's adulterous. That's what sin is. So essentially what you get cued into here is that uh, is really the, the heart of sin, the, the depth of sin. And, and when you move in this direction, all of a sudden, you're going to find yourself um, breaking. Because every good thing in this world, every idol in this world, when you are drawn to it and when you're attracted to it, it, it will prove to be at some point in time, maybe not at first, but at some point in time, it will prove to be a fatal attraction. It'll be an attraction that will lead to your demise. It will be an attraction that leads to your disintegration. It will be an attraction that leads to your dissolution. And so we want to consider the seriousness, the gravity, the dynamics of sin in light of the prostitute and all that is being judged here in this chapter. You see, basically what God wants most from us isn't our commitment what God wants most from us is our heart. This is why Jesus would say the greatest of all the commandments is to what? Is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. That's what God wants from us. He wants our hearts. But the problem with us and our, 
as being prostitutes of sorts is that our heart is divided and our hearts are drawn in various directions that that lead us to betray our greatest lover, lead us to betray the God who created us and who provides for us and who sent Jesus to do things that we could never do on our behalf. And so you hold that in your mind because basically what that image does is that image paints an unflattering picture of who we are and it presents a huge problem, a huge problem that needs to be solved. But good news is in this passage, there's another image. So that you don't have, just have the image of a prostitute receiving the judgment of God, you have the image of the lamb here. Now, one of the things about Revelation 19 verses 1 through 10 is that one of the things to consider about this passage is that it is, it is what's called an apocalyptic text. Meaning that's the genre that it kind of fits into of all the biblical genres and biblical literature that you'll read in the Bible. This one is apocalyptic. And what that means is that the writer mixes metaphors. Uh, I was taught growing up in English class and all my writing that, that if you mix metaphors, that's bad writing. Don't do that. But here we're learning that mixing your metaphors is biblical because it happens all the time in Revelation and it happens all the time in other passages of the Bible. And, and so once again, you have mixed metaphors. You have a prostitute then you have a lamb. And the thing we want to consider about the lamb in this text is that the only way you and I can move from being prostitutes and become a bride is through the sacrificial love that Jesus shows us that the lamb of God would give to us. One of the things about this passage is that uh, all the plot lines in the Bible kind of find their resolution here. All the plot lines in the Bible that might have, you might have read a passage and it might have seemed frayed or it might have seemed incomplete or unresolved, well, they all find resolution here where everything kind of ends in this moment of celebration. One of the passages that's resolved here in Revelation chapter 19, I think explicitly, is a passage found in John chapter 2. In John chapter 2, which is a gospel written by a guy named John, who's the same author of the book of Revelation, and so there's a lot of connection, there's a lot of symmetry between that gospel and the book of Revelation. Well, in John chapter 2, you have this moment where Jesus is attending a wedding feast. He's at this wedding feast, but something goes wrong at the wedding. They run out of wine, and that was a huge problem. Because wine represented the joy of the feast. That's why people wanted to go and celebrate the wedding. Not so much for the couple, but for the wine that would be available to them. Well, they ran out of wine. And so this was a big uh, snafu socially. And so there's a moment Jesus is sitting there at the wedding feast in the midst of all this ceremony and all this activity. And his mom runs up to him and says, Jesus, we've run out of wine. And she's wanting Jesus to stand up and to perform a miracle to do something about it and but Jesus' response is quite jarring and kind of surprising. He looks at his mom and he says, my hour has not yet come. Which is a strange response for Jesus to give. For him to start talking about his hour in the midst of a wedding and amidst of all this stress and strain that everybody's feeling because the wine has run dry. It's almost as though Jesus is sitting in that room and he's kind of daydreaming. He's kind of gazing out into the future and he has his mind on something else while all that is going on. I know before I got married, when I would attend a wedding ceremony, this isn't true of every single person, but it was true of me. When I would attend a wedding ceremony, it would always cause me to think about my own wedding. And I would look to the future thinking about what my ceremony would be like, what would go down when I got married. And that's where my mind would go. I wonder, I wonder if in that moment Jesus was thinking about his own wedding. I wonder if in that moment Jesus was thinking about the day when 
when his hour would come. You see, when Jesus refers to his hour in John chapter 2, the word, the hour all throughout the gospel of John is always a reference to his crucifixion. It's always the moment of his death. And so when he says that my hour has not come, he's saying, look, I'm not ready to die yet. The time is not here. But when I do, my blood is going to establish, it's going to forge a unique relationship with people. My blood is going to bring people into a marital relationship with God. That day is coming. So it's almost as though Jesus is sitting in the midst of this wedding and he's thinking about his own wedding. And the cup is on his mind as he's considering his death that will happen later in the story. And what is interesting, the closer you get to the cross and Jesus' hour comes, you find the image of of a cup, which is essentially a wine glass popping up over and over and over again. You find it in the upper room when Jesus takes his disciples into the upper room and he sits them down and he begins to break the bread and he partakes of the, this meal that represents the new what? The new covenant, the new relationship that God will have with his people. And what is that relationship going to be sealed by? It's going to be ratified and sealed by the blood Jesus would shed on the cross. That's why when he takes the cup, he would say, this cup represents my blood, which is going to be shed for the forgiveness of your prostitution. It's going to be shed because you have betrayed your greatest lover, but don't sweat it. I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to do something that will forgive you, cleanse you. I'm going to do something that's capable of melting your heart and bringing you out of the world of prostitution and into the world of the family of God, where you're relating to God not just as your king and not just as your shepherd, but as your spouse. And then he would go to the Garden of Gethsemane right after leaving the upper room, and what's he praying about? Well, he's praying about a cup. He's praying about this cup, this this cup that he must drink. And he says, Father, if, if there's any other way for this to go down, let it happen. Nevertheless, not what I will, but you, what you will be done. And in the end, Jesus resolved to go to the cross because it turns out that the only way a prostitute can become a bride is through sac- sacrificial love. It's through the shed blood of the lamb. And so Jesus would go to the cross and he would do just that. All that to say is that the lamb And the love that he shows us in his death on the cross is what's capable of changing us from prostitutes into a bride. It melts our hearts. It affects us deeply when we take it in and we think about it. We get honest about our spiritual adultery. And we get honest about Jesus' death on the cross. It does something to us. It affects change. I was reading a book not too long ago called The Prodigal God by Timothy Keller. And in this book, he talks about um, a foreign film called Three Seasons. And this film, Three Seasons, is a movie. It's basically a series of vignettes about life in post-war Vietnam. One of the stories that is told in that movie is a story about Hai, a a cyclo driver or a bicycle rickshaw runner. That's what he did. And, And this prostitute named Lan. Well, Hai loved Lon, and this is what Keller would write about this movie. He said, Lon lives in grinding poverty and wants nothing more than to live in the beautiful world where she works, but in which she never gets to spend the night. She hopes that the money she makes by prostitution will be her means of escape, but instead the work brutalizes and enslaves her. But then Hai enters a cyclo race and wins the top prize. With the money, he brings Lon to the hotel. He pays for the room and pays her fee. Then, to everyone's shock, he tells her he just wants to watch her fall asleep. 
And instead of using his power and wealth to have sex with her, he spends it to purchase a place for her for one night in a normal world. Keller says, Lan finds such grace deeply troubling at first, thinking that Han has done this to control her. But when it comes apparent that he is using his power to serve rather than to use her, it begins to change her, making it impossible for her to return to a life of prostitution. There's something about sacrificial love. There's something about the God of the universe using his power not to squash us and destroy us, but using his power to serve and to save us. There's something about that sacrificial service that melts the heart. And it changes the identity. It makes returning to a life of prostitution almost impossible. So that we're not looking at what we used to love and what we used to give our affections to in the same way after we find ourselves loved by Jesus. We find ourselves loved this way by Jesus and suddenly our perspective changes. And suddenly we're set free to be able to live in the world but not of the world, so to speak. We can enjoy God's good creation without being enslaved to it. We can go about our careers in such a way where we're not trying to find our identity in our career. Why? Because our identity is not with our inferior lovers. Our identity is now wrapped up in our ultimate lover. And suddenly we're free to work well but not stress. We're free to work and not feel like the whole world is dependent upon the job that you're doing or that your family's welfare isn't ultimately dependent upon how well you go about your days at the workplace or whatever the case may be. This type of love changes our identity. This type of sacrifice, this type of service, the service that we are given from the Lamb, it can powerfully melt the heart, giving us a new identity, taking us out of a life of prostitution and into the enjoyment of a marital, covenantal, united relationship with our God. It can make us a bride, Which brings us to the third image of this passage, and that is the image of the bride and the result that this brings about. That when you find yourself loved by Jesus in this way, and you're responding positively to Jesus and his death and his resurrection, and you're considering the sacrifice he made for you, it changes your identity, bringing you into a marital relationship with God. Now, let's think about the marital relationship so you can think about the results of this dynamic. One of the things about this relationship that we share with God as a result of Jesus and as a result of the gospel is that we are now stepping into a relationship with God that will be permanent. A relationship with God that cannot be broken, a relationship with God that cannot be overturned, that when God redeems his people, he redeems them permanently. This is why in our own marriage ceremonies, marriage is designed and intended to be a permanent union. This is why you oftentimes attend weddings and there's a ring exchange and that ring doesn't represent a symbol of power. We're not talking about something that needs to be destroyed in the the Lord of the Rings. We're talking about a, a symbol of permanence. That's what marriage was designed to do. Why? Because it's to reflect our relationship with our God. So that when we are brought into this spousal relationship with the creator of the universe, that relationship is a permanent relationship. And it is permanent not because you will never sin again. It's permanent because God has already judged your sin in Jesus. That Jesus already drank the cup of wrath when he went to the cross. Therefore, there's no more for you to drink. You will never know the judgment of God in your life. You have a permanent relationship with God. There is a legal change of status in your relationship with him. 
You consider another analogy. Consider a poor person marrying a rich person. When that happens, what happens is what belongs to the rich person is given to the poor. It becomes the poor person's stuff. Well, when you step into a relationship with Jesus, his riches become your riches. Or to put it another way, his righteousness becomes your righteousness. This is why the bride in Revelation chapter 19 is being dressed up, being given linens. And those linens, yes, they would represent the righteous acts of the saints, but those linens were given to the bride. When you step into this relationship receiving the gospel, you step into a permanent relationship with a legal change of status. You will never know the judgment of God ever again. But then you also step in a comprehensive relationship. When you marry someone, you're not just marrying a part of a person. You're marrying the whole person. But when you step into a relationship with God, you're stepping into a comprehensive relationship so that his presence, his passions, his purposes should penetrate every area of your life. You don't compartmentalize. You do not say, okay, well, this is, my, uh, this is where I deal with my relationship with God, and this is where I deal with everything else. It's, no, it's God is everything, and he's involved, impacting and influencing every aspect of our lives because we've been united with him in this covenantal relationship. But not only is it a covenant relationship or a comprehensive relationship, it's an intimate relationship. It's an intimate relationship. One of the things that makes this idea of marriage, transferring that into our understanding of our relationship with God challenging for us is because we live in a culture where cohabitation is more common than marriage. That cohabitation is more common than covenant commitment. And some would say, well, we don't need a contract. We don't need a legal standing with another person to show our love. And we'll kind of define, we'll talk about marriage in those types of ways. And they'll act like they're married, but they're not married. But do you know where the breakdown is? If marriage is supposed to be a comprehensive, intimate union between two people, then when you cohabitate with someone, you're engaging in one form of vulnerability, but not a comprehensive form of vulnerability. Meaning you may become physically vulnerable with that person. But what you're not doing is you're not becoming legally vulnerable with them economically vulnerable with them, you're still protecting yourself. You're not vulnerable in a cohabitating dynamic. That's not marriage, and that's not the relationship God designed you to be in with another human being, and it's certainly not the relationship he designed you to be in with him. When we step into a relationship with God, we're stepping into an intense, comprehensive form of intimacy where we are vulnerable in every discernible way. Our entire lives are thrust upon his grace, is thrust upon his promises, is thrust upon his commitment to be all that we need and then some to take care of us, to treasure us, to carry us all the way into the new heavens and the new earth. We become intensely vulnerable when we marry God, so to speak, when we step into this relationship with the creator of the universe. So this relationship, the results for the bride is a relationship that is Permanent, comprehensive, intimate. We can go, another dynamic of this intimate relationship is I would, one of the ways that you can gauge this. You can gauge whether or not you're relating to God in this way by assessing your prayer life. Do you spend more time asking God for things or more time adoring God for who he is? If the vast majority of your prayer life is you're asking God for things, you're relating to him like a sheep and a shepherd, 
you're relating to him like a subject and a king. You, you need him for things, but you're not yet relating to him as a spouse. You're not yet adoring him for who he is. You're not yet basking in his beauty, basking in his wonder. And so to mature in your faith, you need to nurture this type of intimacy so that you can relate to him, not just as your king and your shepherd, but you can relate to him as your spouse. That's the relationship you were designed for. That's when intimacy is going to ignite in your relationship with God. But then not only is it intimate in this dynamic, you also want to consider how it's fruitful. This type of relationship, when you have intimacy with God, it's going to change your life. You will begin to bear fruit. Consider John chapter 15, verse 5, when Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches, whoever abides in me and I in him, he or she will bear much fruit. That this union, this closeness with God is going to change our lives so that we begin to bear the fruit of love and joy and peace and patience, kindness and goodness and long-suffering, gentleness, self-control. We're going to bear the fruit of influence as we see more and more men and women stepping out of a life of prostitution and into a life of marital relationship with God. We'll see that happen as fruit is born from this union, from this relationship with God. Now, we can look at this another way, too, though. When you, have, when you are being drawn towards other lovers, so to speak, when you're being tempted to sin or to treat something in creation as if it is the creator, even that union is going to bear fruit. It's just not going to bear good fruit. It's going to bear bad fruit. Again, I'll reference back to the, what, the image of uh, mentioned a moment ago, let's say you go to bed with your career, the bad fruit of workaholism, the bad fruit of ethical, ethical compromise, the bad fruit of various things can blossom in your life, not because you're not loving someone, but because you are loving the wrong thing the wrong way. And so we want to consider how this image of the bride and the results of our faith in Jesus gives shape to our lives, but then the last dynamic, the last feature that I would point out the results for this bride as a result of this love given to them, as a result of this life change that is happening, is the result of consolation. Consolation, I know that, that might be a weird word, but it basically means comfort. It means comfort, it means hope. And here's what I mean by this. Go back to John chapter 2. In John chapter 2, you have that moment where Jesus is sitting in the midst of so much joy, but he's sipping the cup of his future sorrow. He's thinking about his hour. But we know we live on this side of the death and resurrection of Jesus, so we begin to think about John chapter 2 this way. There Jesus sat in the midst of so much joy, sipping on his future sorrow. Why did he do that? Well, he did that so that you and I could sit in the midst of our current sorrows and sip of our future joy. So we can think about the future that is waiting for us. And the future that is waiting for us isn't a cross. The future that is waiting for us isn't a judgment that's definitive and decisive like what's portrayed in Revelation 19. The future that is waiting us is a feast. So we can sit. There's something about our relationship with God and seeing ourselves in this covenantal relationship with the God of the universe, this intimate, permanent relationship that that changes our perspective on the future so that we can sit in the midst of our sorrows and sufferings right now and sip of our coming joy, our coming glory, our future gladness. This is what the life of faith does. This is how you and I can become a community that it celebrates regularly. 
We always have something to celebrate, no matter what hell is breaking loose in our life right now. There's always something to celebrate because we can sit in our current sufferings and sorrows while sipping the cup of our future joy. This is the result of being the bride of Christ right now. This is why the church should be a celebratory community where we are worshiping God, not because we're not crying and not because we're not struggling and not because we're not suffering. We're worshiping our God because we know that our crying and our suffering and our struggles are only temporary. We know there's coming a day in Revelation chapter 21 when the new heavens and the new earth is ushered in by the return of Jesus. And you have this beautiful picture of God drawing near to each one of his, each one of his children, each one of his people, and wiping away every tear from their eyes and assuring them that death shall be no more. Sorrow, sickness, sadness, suffering will be no more. It's all going to be done away with. And the only thing that will be left for us to do is feast. So we respond to this invitation in verse 9. Blessed are those who invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb, saying, yes, I want to be there. I want to be with you. So we've sent our RSVP, so to speak, by putting our faith in Jesus, saying, look, that day is going to be my day because I'm with this Jesus I want this Jesus. And so we hear that invitation and we respond by putting our faith in him. We respond by confessing our sins and recognizing that we can confess our sins and still celebrate. In fact, there's a sense in which when we can confess our spiritual adultery, it leads to spiritual celebration because we're reminded of the lamb and what he has done for us. And so we rest in that, we press into that, we celebrate that. And there's one reason, this is the main reason why we come to the table every week. When we gather together and partake of the Lord's Supper every week. It's because this meal that we're about to partake in is just a small foreshadowing of the feast that is to come. And we know that day's coming because the body of Jesus was given for us. And we know that day's coming because the blood of Jesus was shed for our forgiveness the covenant was sealed. We are now married to God in a permanent, comprehensive, intimate, fruitful, and consoling relationship, a union that starts now and lasts forever. And so here's what I want us to do over these next few moments is I want us just to consider these dynamics, and I want us to move into a moment of celebration. And we're going to celebrate in two ways. We're going to celebrate one first by coming to the table and partaking of this meal, being reminded of the body of Christ given for you and the blood of Christ shed for you, the basis of your relationship with God. And then we're also going to celebrate by joining and singing together and just celebrating the wonder of who God is and what God has done for us in the gospel. And so I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to open up the table. And if you are trusting in the gospel, if you've received or responded to this invitation by putting your faith in Jesus, then I want to encourage you to come to the table and partake of this meal celebrating the reality of the gospel. And then the rest of us will stand and we will sing as all that is happening. Let's pray. Father, would you give us grace now as we respond to the realities of the gospel? Thank you for forgiving us of our sin and our spiritual prostitution. Thank you for sending your son Jesus to live and to die in a way that would change our hearts, to give his life for us, loving us in an incredible way. We thank you for that. God, we thank you for the way that you have changed and are changing us. Thank you for this recognition that we are your bride. Give us grace to enjoy that reality now. 
Help us to look forward to the day when all this is fully realized and made fully known in the new heavens and the new earth. And until that day comes, would you give us grace to sit in the midst of our sorrows and the sadness of a fallen world, but sip the cup of our coming joy and our coming glory. I pray that our future, I pray that our future with you would make us glad now. So Holy Spirit, would you breathe upon our hearts, move among us in a way that would affect us and would cause us to celebrate, rejoicing in you no matter what else is going on in our lives. God, we love you, we thank you, and we pray for all of this now in Jesus' name. Amen.